So I was determined to go to Las Vegas again, and my bosses were skeptical about it. And I, I sold it to them by saying, not only were we going to go to CES, but we were going to go on and interview the most interesting man in technology, Elon Musk. And they had just about heard of him at that stage. He wasn't as well known as he is now. And they said, yeah, okay. And what I didn't tell them, this was back in October, uh, and the trip was in the following January, was that I hadn't fixed the interview up. And in fact, we took off for Las Vegas with the interview still not fixed. And it was two days into our CES filming that we finally got the call that we could see Musk uh, at his design center in Los Angeles. Hello, and welcome to Fishy Business, a series dedicated to exploring the lesser known side of cybersecurity. I'm Alice. And I'm Brian, and we're colleagues at Mimecast. Every episode will be joined by a special visitor who's definitely not your average guest to share tales of risk, reward, and ridiculousness. We'll be looking for new ways to think about cybersecurity to learn how we can all improve in the fight to stay safe. Brian, what does being always on mean to you? I think I can relate and I'm fairly sure my wife can relate too because she doesn't like the fact that I have my phone on me all the time and I probably work too much and, and that's without uh, all the endless social media scrolling. Well, social media is actually how we got in touch with our guest today and fittingly part of what we're talking about today as well. We're joined by Rory Kethlin-Jones, until very recently the BBC's technology correspondent and author of Always On, Hope and Fear in the Social Smartphone Era. Hi, very I'm, happy to be here. Quite excited about this. <laughs> yeah, so I think, much, I think we're excited too. I'm excited to get started. <laughs> Welcome, Rory. Thank you uh, for being with us today. So, Rory, we always like to go back a little. How would you explain what you do to somebody at a dinner party, for example? Well, uh, it depends if you mean what I do now or what I was doing until a few months ago. But uh, there, there is some continuity there. Um, what I do or have done for many years is try and keep abreast of every important development in the technology world and then communicate it to as broad an audience as possible. Um, I'm a kind of specialist journalist. I would not claim to be a deeply specialist journalist. I think my skill has been in trying to translate those extraordinary complex uh, concepts to as many people as possible. Uh, I'll give you one example, quantum computing. What a nightmare that is to explain and understand. Uh, but I've, I've had a go several times over recent years. Maybe if you could take us back a bit then, because it's obviously something that, uh, you know, sort of dear to your heart is this ability to communicate to people and, uh, you know, your career in journalism kind of uh, is, is a sort of almost a, a case study in that. Could you maybe tell us a bit about how you got into journalism in the first place and maybe how you came to work uh, for the BBC? Well, that's going back a very long way. So... I studied modern languages at, at Cambridge. I had never been near a computer. I, I'm born in the pre-computer age. There was one computer in my school that was uh, a giant beast of a machine that filled an entire room in the science block. And only boys wearing white coats studying physics were allowed to approach it. And I was not one of them. Um, and I decided in my final few terms uh, university that I definitely didn't want to be an accountant. All of my friends were becoming accountants and I really wanted to be a, a journalist and I had seen various glamorous movies about journalism and I started doing uh, a lot of student journalism and applying left, right and centre 
uh, trying to hammer door doors down and eventually got a short-term contract at the BBC in Leeds, a local newsroom, uh, as a researcher on a programme called Look North. And that was in 1981. And it was a very short-term contract. And I remember my mother saying, oh, I don't know. Is that wise? Um, and I ended up staying for 40 years. So it kind of worked out. I went from being a researcher to very swiftly a producer on the main television newsroom in London. It was a time of great expansion. There were big opportunities. Then again, to my mother's horror, I chucked in the, the, the full-time staff job and went for the BBC to become a reporter on screen in Wales, um, learning my craft that way, and then came back to London and became a business reporter for, for many years and a business correspondent covering the, the, the big stories of the day. And by the late 90s, the only business stories that really interested me, really gripped me, was what was happening uh, in the world of technology, the, the rise of the likes of Google, the dot-com bubble and all that. And I flung myself at that. And eventually the BBC kind of relented and said, OK, you're obviously really into this. We're going to call you technology correspondent instead. Uh, and then I got to do only technology stories rather than the annual results of some bank or, or retailer, which did not interest me. In your book, for example, you describe being at the iPhone launch. Um, and apart from maybe the stress of, you know, meeting deadlines and sending the reporting package over and a potentially dodgy Wi-Fi connection, what was your opinion of that? How did you find that whole experience? Well, that was the, the first big story uh, I was assigned to um, when I'd been covering technology for years already, but when I got the official title. And here's how it happened. So that it was January 2007, and the BBC decided to send me and a big team off to CES, the rather grotesque annual gadget fest in Las Vegas, which I got used to going to year after year. And I said, yeah, I know we're spending a lot of money going there, but Steve Jobs, he's, he's quite an arrogant guy, and he says he's not going to rub shoulders with everybody else. He's going to have his own event over in San Francisco called Mac World. And why don't we take a day out, spend even more money, BBC, uh, and go and do that as well? And the bosses were, were dubious, but said, oh, OK, seeing as you're there. And of course, it turned out to be probably the, the, the biggest news story uh, I've ever covered as a technology story and an absolutely groundbreaking event. Um, I remember pitching up in the hall of the Moscone Centre in San Francisco and being rather taken aback at first as a cynical British hack by the atmosphere, which was like a sort of revivalist meeting. There were lots of bloggers there, uh, people who who depended on, you know, whipping up enthusiasm for, for Apple products, not sort of very objective. Uh, and they were hooting, hooting and hollering no end. But... One was immediately transfixed by the Steve Jobs performance. He appeared on stage in the trademark black polo neck sweater and jeans and wireframe glasses. And he stood there for a moment in silence, looking down. And then he looked up and said, we're going to make some history here today. And I said to myself uh, again, oh, please, you know, cynical British journalist. He's <laughs> going over the top. Uh, but it was then the most amazing performance. He started with this, this, man, this description of the history of computing, 
which of course turned out to be all about Mac products. Um, <laughs> uh, and then he said, we're going to launch not one, but three groundbreaking products here today. Uh, a widescreen touchscreen iPod, an internet device and a phone, a widescreen touchscreen iPod, an internet device and a phone. And he kept repeating this mantra and the hysteria grew in the hall as people realized it was not one, it was not three, but one device. And it was the iPhone, you know, cue complete madness. <laughs> um, and it was, what, what told me that it was significant, this device was when I was running out of the hall, you know, desperate to get my story uh, over to London against a very tight deadline. And I got a call from the news desk in London saying, we've seen the pictures, you've got to have your hands on that phone. And the news desk was never interested in technology stories, didn't really care, but they had been gripped because it looked so different. It was so immediately visually arresting. And that told me that um, uh, this was gonna be big. Uh, and so it turned out to be. I mean, you've had a front row seat at uh, many of these kind of events and you've interviewed some of the, the world's top tech executives. Uh, we've been taking kind of bets in the team here as to, as to who your kind of choice of your favorite is going to be and, and why that might be. I, I'm betting on Steve Jobs, but uh, are you going to surprise me and, and tell me that it was somebody else for, for some other interesting reasons? Uh, I am going to disappoint you uh, or surprise <laughs> you. Uh, so... Although I did meet Steve Jobs a couple of times, it was in the most constrained circumstances. It was like, uh, you know, a Hollywood junket. You got two minutes, man, ushered in, got to ask two questions and ushered out again. So that was not, although he was a, obviously a compelling presence, that was not a very satisfactory thing. But the most compelling encounter of my career, I think, was with Elon Musk. Um, who is a very complex figure, obviously, and about whom I frankly got a lot more negative in, in recent years. But it was in 2016, and I had persuaded my bosses that um, it, every year it got more and more difficult to sell to my bosses the trip to that annual CES show. And the irony was I hated the show because it was, you know, a nightmare trudging around against against the clock trying to get something out of it but it was vital to me as a way of selling stories each year because you could say you know this is happening that normally it's yeah ai is really big but and your news editor says yeah but what's happened today so i was determined to go to las vegas again and my bosses were skeptical about it and i i sold it to them by saying not only were we going to go to ces but we were going to go on and interview the most interesting man in technology elon musk and they had just about heard of him at that stage. He wasn't as well known as he is now. And they said, yeah, okay. And what I didn't tell them, this was back in October, uh, and the trip was in the following January, was that I hadn't fixed the interview up. And in fact, we took off for Las Vegas with the interview still not fixed. And it was two days into our CES filming that we finally got the call that we could see Musk uh, at his design center in Los Angeles. And we ended up driving in a Tesla to get shots from Vegas to LA, which was a great experience in itself. Um, uh, filming in this kind of James Bond villain there, his design center with uh, black drapes over the future Tesla models. Uh, 
and then this rather uh, unassuming figure in a in in a sort of sh shabby black suit, uh, mumbling slightly, ar arrived, and I thought, is this going to work? I've put so much effort into getting this interview, uh, and at first I thought no, this is not going to work. And then about a couple of minutes in, he started coming up with amazing quotes. For instance, he talked about the future shape of motoring. And he said, in, in, in a few years time, owning a car that you have to drive yourself will be like owning a horse, something you do for sentimental, emotional reasons, not practical reasons. Uh, and then eventually he used the line, when we are a multi-planet species. And I thought, yeah, we've got this. Uh, and it was a compelling interview, full of the usual um, exaggeration, frankly, and hyperbole, um, but really, really interesting. So I think that 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 was a real a real highlight. And it's amazing that you've interviewed so many pioneers, for example, in their space. And we know that um, one person that you've interviewed is, of course, Professor Stephen Hawking. Can you tell us what was that like? I know he made a quite a scary prediction about AI saying it could render humans obsolete, for example, and apart from it being a great hook for your story, um, maybe what are your thoughts on AI? Oh, well, I mean, the story behind that interview was extraordinary. I don't know if people know, I didn't know at the time what it took to interview Stephen Hawking. So what you had to do was send off half a dozen questions by email, uh, and then he would respond uh by email and then at a later date you'd go and actually record basically the script of what had been agreed so i sent off some uh, what i thought were quite decent questions about what he thought about his new technology why he hadn't had his voice changed because he'd stuck with his old robotic voice um what he thought about the internet and so on and then one last question oh what about this ai business you've got some ai here what do you think about that and a few weeks later the answers came back and they were all reasonably interesting he said for instance oh i've stuck with my old voice because kids like it and recognize it uh, it may be robotic but it's my trademark and then i got to the last answer about ai and i just went oh my god because he basically said if full ai is developed then humanity becomes obsolete the machines will no longer need us so that was obviously a huge story but it wasn't a story until he actually said it and he got ill and there was a delay and eventually we turned up at the Savoy Hotel in London where a press conference was due and were ushered into his presence and we were all overawed because this, you know, was a historic figure. And then his technology wouldn't work. Um, the computer, which effectively he pressed a space bar on to say his answers, was not working. And kind of ironically, the whole thing was sorted by the traditional method. They turned it off and on again. Uh, and then he uttered this important answer and it went around the world uh we put it on the tv obviously and we put the whole interview out uh, online and th this was 2014 and it was part of the, the 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 sort of growing debate about ai which we've been having ever since about how dangerous it could be but what was interesting was that people in the AI field were actually quite annoyed by him because they said he may be a brilliant scientist, but he doesn't know about this.
And I'm quite curious to actually sort of dig down into your views on those sorts of things in general a little bit. Um, you know, you've obviously interviewed a wide range of people. And I mean, there's some fairly obvious ones where pop stars start telling us uh, things about global warming and you kind of think, well, that might be true, but why am I getting my information from you? Or actresses telling us about, uh, you know, the pros and cons of vaccination. But there are people like Elon Musk, like Stephen Hawking, et cetera, who are you know, prodigies in their own rights and certainly have this ability to firstly assimilate and secondly process information in ways that are not, you know, kind of mainstream. But do you maybe find some people who are, you know, very successful in a certain era start to stray out of their path a little bit? Uh, or do you feel that having interviewed a whole bunch of people, you, you know, let's stick to the AI side of things, because I guess I'm getting a little bit too broad with the question, that there actually are some dangers there and, and what might those dangers be? I think it's interesting what you say. I I have thought during this pandemic how important it is for for 99% of us who don't know this stuff to listen to, to to evaluate where our information is coming from and who is saying it. And I'm very distrustful of um, a lot of journalists and politicians who are obviously coming at it with an angle. Now, to be fair, there are scientists who have an angle too, but there are there are people who've got a great track record uh, in epidemiology and so on who I would rather trust than than um, uh, than anybody else. Um, and in in a way, it's the same with AI. So I I'm more impressed. There's just been a, a great series of lectures, the Reef lectures by Professor Stuart Russell, um, who is a leading expert on AI and a, a big thinker about it and written a huge textbook about it. He's at Berkeley, California. Uh, and that made me more worried than I had been. Uh, he thinks there are real dangers. Um, for instance, he, he thinks we've all been very relaxed about the military use of AI and that, you know, killer drone robots uh, just around the corner uh, and pose an instant threat and we should we should be very worried about them you know the singularity may be quite a way away but there are imminent dangers which we do need to focus on so I, I, I would listen to people like him. And that's quite interesting. I mean, it struck me when I was reading your book, you described Steve Jobs up on stage, sort of swiping um, on the iPhone and the crowd, ooing and aahing, doing things that we would consider completely mundane now. And I mean, again, it's that ringside seat that you've had, that front row seat, um, possibly looking back, are there things that we've now, just because they've come on kind of in slow steps that we just take for granted? I mean, you've mentioned the military use of AI, but things like Internet of Things, you know, where do you think the next wave of potential vulnerabilities are going to be with this growing dependence that we that we have as a as a species now on you know on technology it's interesting how quickly we become accustomed to technology uh, and blase about it um when i first heard that i could speak to a device it would answer back and do things it seemed a miracle and now a few years later, we all swear at the things and say, why, why is it so dumb? Um, we introduce these devices into our homes. I've, I've got a house full of voice activated uh, devices, um, which kind of drive my wife up the wall, um, uh, without necessarily thinking too deeply about the vulnerabilities.
I know there are some uh, attempts to legislate online activities, such as, for example, the online harms bill in the UK is an example of that. Do you think that would make a difference? And do you think it goes far enough in terms of protection? Well, the uh, I'm in two minds about this. I mean, the online harms bill is a huge, unwieldy piece of legislation, which has got a key problem at the heart of it, because it tries to define things that are harmful, but not illegal. If something's illegal, that's fine. You may disagree with the law, but you know where you stand. Um, it's illegal to drive uh, at 50 miles an hour and a 30 mile an hour limit. And you may think that's daft, but that's the law. Defining something that's harmful um, is, is really difficult. We, we've all got different views of what is harmful and what isn't. I think what's interesting though, is when I started covering this area, there was an attitude in the, in the first decade of the 21st century that from the tech giants and, and from their supporters, a very Californian attitude, uh, that the internet was a place that was other, that was free, that could not be governed. Don't bring your 20th century, 19th century national laws here because they won't work. Well, that's been shown to be completely wrong. And you touched on an interesting point there as well around, um, you know, the impact of social media and, and how that has evolved and changed over the years. Um, of course, we know you're very active on Twitter as an example. Um, what do you make of the network and, and how do you manage your relationship with it? Um, I know in your book, for example, you mentioned around, you know, it's, it's potentially a, a ridiculous concept where you just send a brief text to a friend saying that you're having a nice cup of tea, for example. But so that was 2007. That's how I was going to say, wait, wait. do you think your view has changed? Oh, goodness. Well, all of our views. I mean. I was a very early adopter um, because I felt I needed to, to, to plunge in. So Twitter was very young. Uh, it was about a year old when I joined and it quickly became, uh, and, and people mocked you saying, you know, why am I interested in you having a cup of coffee? And that very quickly changed. Uh, and the entire tech community in London, for example, was on Facebook in mid, mid 2007 and by Christmas, they'd all gravitated to Twitter. It was a much more useful network. And I, you know, 15 years on, I still find it incredibly useful, um, both uh, as a broadcast medium, frankly, you know, telling people what I'm doing, but also finding stuff out. Uh, I used it a lot in the early, in my early use of it to get stories, to hunt down case studies. And other journalists at the BBC used to come to me saying, slightly shamefacing you, you know this twitter thing i need to find somebody whose luggage was lost at heathrow by the airline wants to complain can you help me um <laughs> silly things like that um so i i do see huge value in it and and um also i've seen it although we 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 obsess about quite rightly the damaging effects of social media. And there are lots and lots of damaging effects and terrible abuse. I've also seen incredibly positive things from it. Um, in recent days, we've had a, a very beloved family dog die. And I've talked about it on Twitter and just had this most incredible outpouring of love, to be honest, which I found very positive. Um, I've talked, you know, about personal things, about illness and so on, and had a lot of support. 
that way too. So I I I do see the positive sides of it. So maybe let's talk a little bit about your personal use of both mobile devices, which you talk about a lot in your book, uh, and social media, which are kind of the nexus of of everything, aren't they? That for yeah. the moment, I mean, obviously things are going to change with uh, potentially change with uh, Web three if if all the uh, fanfares to be believed. But but your personal use um, of of things like your mobile phone, social media, have you kind of found a way to relate to them and to use them in a way? You know, have you managed to find a way that's, that's kind of works for you and 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 keeps them in some kind of 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 you know reasonable uh, you know between some kind of reasonable guardrails? My wife would say no. Um, I uh, am an obsessive user of my my mobile phone. I mean, yeah, my book Always On is about the way quite suddenly from the launch of the iPhone on, smartphones and social media combined changed so many aspects of life, such a powerful force. Um, and yeah, I see that personally. Um, you know, the, from early in the morning when I wake up to last thing at night, my phone is is on. I'm looking at it, and I'm very often looking at Twitter um, or taking pictures on it. I mean, that's what, that's one fascinating area that has changed. The the way trans photography was transformed over a matter of a few years by the smartphone, by the fact that everybody had these devices with them. Um, I found that I just I ended up taking something like four thousand photos a year at the peak. I don't know if I take quite that many of these these days, but um, uh, and they were better photos than I had. Here's a funny example: at that, at that Steve Jobs uh, iPhone launch, I had a digital SLR camera with me, a, you know, quite basic model but uh, reasonably sophisticated. And I took some pictures and they were terrible pictures because I'm not a good photographer. It was difficult lighting conditions and they were quite out of focus. Steve Jobs on stage, rather out of focus. Seven years later, I went to the Apple Watch launch where Tim Cook unveiled this new device. And I took pictures then that were much better than my digital SLR pictures. And of course they were taken on an iPhone, but they were at least in focus and uh, moderately good so that's one one area of life that's been radically changed um yeah i i do spend too much time both on my phone and on social media uh, and i worry about it sometimes but on the other hand as i say i i feel they've been life enhancing in many ways and we've seen that in particular during the pandemic when you know that kind of connectivity has been essential to many people when they've been locked down. In terms of looking into, say, things like cybercrime, obviously we look into, you know, um, the the darker side of, of the internet and, um, say, for example, hackers and, and criminals who use the internet for negative purposes. How do you tend to approach talking about cybercrime to the general public, for example? I know you mentioned initially around finding ways to describe things to a very wide audience. In your experience, what angles do you find resonate the most? Well, it always comes back to personal stories. Um, and they're qu often quite difficult to find, aren't they? Uh, and editors used to say to me, quite rightly, so there's been this enormous hack. Um, have you got a case study? And then you would think about it and say, uh, 
say to yourself, actually, maybe this enormous hack doesn't matter that much because it's not actually harmed an individual. Whereas basic, you know, phishing attacks um, or on a bigger scale, ransomware attacks that bring a hospital to a halt, they are vivid examples of, of, of harm caused. So I have I always looked for the human stories and the, and the real impact stories, because there's a lot of, I, I think generally in, in the questions, the same applies to the stories about privacy. I'm, I'm slightly concerned that we've become over obsessed with privacy. Um, uh, and there are no real examples of actual harm. What you need to tell a story and to make a story valid is evidence of harm caused, not sort of theoretical dangers. So that's what I'm always looking for. I think that's quite interesting that you talk about the privacy side. You, I mean, you announced your Parkinson's diagnosis on, on Twitter, yeah. um, which actually that resonated with me because I struggled even to kind of uh, reveal a personal uh, diabetes diagnosis just to my team, uh, which is a much smaller audience than a Twitter audience. Um, so I guess uh, privacy is a, is, is a kind of very, very personal thing. But something else which is, is very personal is what technology can do to help people. Um, and maybe let's sort of, uh, there's a huge amount of harm. You've touched on how, you know, a, a huge amount of that in, in your book, but maybe let's ask you what you think the next big technology innovation that will help society, you know, is it going to be a medical thing? You talk a lot about some of that. In your book, you describe working with uh, med tech companies to help you and others with your diagnosis. Um, what can you expect? Uh, what can we expect to see in future that would, that, that, that's going to be positive on the technology side? Well, I, I'm going to give you an example that I'm writing about right now. Um, since I left the BBC, one of the things I've done is start a newsletter about health tech, which is a real fascinating area for me, for obvious reasons. It combines, you know, my own situation with my interest in technology. Um, and I visited a house this week uh, in Bristol, which was set up uh, to basically it's a bit like the big brother house it's full of cameras and sensors uh, and people with various conditions go there to spend five days there and have their every move monitored and the project I was looking at was people with Parkinson's because one of the huge challenges about Parkinson's is measuring whether you're getting worse or not measuring the symptoms you see a doctor every four months and they say they make you walk up and down the consulting room uh and maybe open and close your your hand and it just gives it an incredibly rough estimate of, of where you are and there's a huge technology drive to improve that and to measure it and, and because it's absolutely vital if new drugs are to be found because in developing a new drug you've got to show that it has an impact. There was a big drugs trial around Parkinson's where there was a lot of excitement, which, which involved drugs being piped basically via a sort of tap into people's brain. And the people on the trial felt, thought that it had worked, but the trial was deemed a failure because the difference in the improvement in their symptoms versus the placebo effect was not big enough. And that was partly because there's no very good way of measuring people's symptoms. So what they're doing in this house uh, is 
getting some data uh, about various sort of movements, getting up uh, out of a chair, uh, just moving around, um, and testing this technology, which one day will be deployed in people's homes for a year. So it could be used in a clinical trial, um, get a vast amount of data and see whether a drug was working or not. So I think that that is a fascinating area that combines uh, Internet of Things, all these sensors around the house uh, with with machine learning, because interpreting these vast amounts of data is going to be a big computing task. So that's that's a thing I'm I'm really excited about. That's amazing. That's uh... And I guess it's uh, it's going to be like any other technology. Um, it's uh, got sort of both good and and bad uses to it. It really just depends on us as people, you know, what what we do with it and and, and how we work with it. Rory, um, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. There's so many other questions we would have loved to to ask you, but I guess that uh, is really just going to be an incentive for our listeners to to get your book. I actually started reading it again just before this interview, just to sort of pick up on some pieces because I only read it uh, a few months ago. Um, we always like to end our podcasts by asking our guests three simple questions. Looking back over your career, what's the one insight that you'd wish you'd learned sooner or maybe that you could go back and tell your younger self? Um, I think to be bold, uh, to given the chance to, uh, to go and see somebody, to... to, to uh, try out a new technology um, just to get out and meet people. And I feel this particularly at the moment <laughs> during the pandemic, go for it. Um, you'll never regret, you know, a lot of the things you will see or won't, won't, won't add up, but, but embrace it, uh, embrace the opportunity to see new things uh, and not be too cynical about them. I think that's great advice. Um... And then what are you reading or listening to at the moment, um, apart from your own book? Uh, is there anything else that you'd uh, recommend for our listeners? There's a great book that I read many years ago, which is not a sort of stand, standard sort of technology textbook, but it's, a, it's, it's, it's by an author called um, Francis Spufford, and it's called The Backroom Boys. And it's basically just beautifully told stories uh about technology uh technology advances in the uk for instance the the people that built the first uh 3d space game elite in in the 1980s um uh the, the arrival of mobile telephony and the experimentation involved in that and it what it is it's the best kind of science writing science technology writing because it's very human uh and it's beautifully written. Thank you so much. We have a, a long and ever expanding list of uh, kind of reading recommendations. So we'll definitely add that on. And uh, yeah, it definitely sounds like a, a great read. And thank you so much for talking to us today, Rory. It's, it really has been truly fascinating and I wish we could have had longer. We'd just love to ask so many questions, but we may have to have you back potentially. Um, do you have any final recommendations or thoughts before we go? And where can our listeners maybe get hold of your book? Well, my book, uh, Always On, is available at all good bookshops and at uh, a well-known online retailer. Um, <laughs> can I also promote my Substack newsletter about health tech? Uh, 
Absolutely. Which is also called Always On. But if you search Substack Rory Kathleen Jones, you will find it. Uh, and it's it's taking up more and more of my time as as these things tend to do. You think you've retired, but you haven't. <laughs> yes, my parents would definitely attest to that. <laughs> thank you so much Rory for meeting with us today and sharing your stories and your thoughts it really has been fascinating speaking with you and thank you so much to all of our listeners for joining on this week's fishy business it's really been a pleasure to have you with us if you have enjoyed our podcast today please do leave us a review on Spotify iTunes or wherever you're hearing this and feel free to leave to follow us on Twitter page at Mimecast if you'd like to learn more about what we discussed today until next time 